A new JAMA study found that listening to music was significantly associated with easing stress during pandemic restrictions. It was especially helpful if the music was seen as happy. It's just more evidence to back my love of objectively terrible pop music. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ben Leonard. Anti-abortion rights groups are planning to protest CVS and Walgreens pharmacies after the firm said they'd dispense abortion pills in line with new FDA policy. I'll hit at least eight major cities, including D.C. and New York City, in early February. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission this week said it will prioritize enforcing new protections for pregnant workers in the next four years. In the the end-of-the-year spending bill, Congress required employers to offer reasonable accommodations for pregnant individuals in the workplace, such as bathroom breaks and seating options. And federal officials are paying attention to promising programs emerging on the front lines of the opioid epidemic, in prisons and jails. Krista Marr is here to talk about her reporting from Maine State Prison, where new interventions are making a difference in reducing opioid deaths. Maine introduced a program a couple of years ago in its prisons where they started to roll out different medications for opioid use, people who are diagnosed with opioid use disorder. And they started this program because they were observing, like a lot of prisons and jails in the United States, that people who were leaving the correctional facility were at really high risk for overdose as soon as they left prison. And that's because a couple of reasons. First of all, if you have opioid use disorder and and you just stop taking opioids, then your tolerance goes way down. And then if you go suddenly outside back into your community and you do use, then you are like much more susceptible to overdosing. And then the, the second problem that is also happening across the U.S. is that the drug supply is getting a lot more dangerous. So as we're seeing more and more fentanyl in the drug supply, um, it just makes it all the more dangerous if somebody does exit a prison and start reusing. So what Maine has done Mm-hmm. is started to introduce, you know, different medications. And then that has like drastically reduced the risk of fatal overdose once people actually leave the prison. So the, they started the program in 2019. And since then, there's been a 60% reduction in people dying once they get out of prison due to opioid overdoses. Why does the Biden administration see Maine as a model that could be used for other correctional facilities across the country? Well, Maine isn't the only place doing this, but they are doing it a little bit differently than most places. You know, there's a patchwork kind of system of what's happening with opioid use disorder treatment in prisons and jails across the country. Mm. What Maine is doing differently is that it has opened up the program to anybody in their system. If you are serving a life sentence, you can get on treatment and get a prescription to treat your opioid use disorder. If you are leaving prison in a year, you can also get a prescription. Mm. The other thing that Maine is doing, in addition to offering universal access to these medications, is that it's also being very careful about sending people back into the community with tools such as Narcan, the drug that's used to prevent overdoses, and fentanyl test strips so that people can actually test the drugs that they're using if they do go 
back and, and decide to use drugs again. And also making sure that they're connected with treatment providers so that they are on treatment once they leave the prison and then they actually continue their treatment in the community and they have a place to go to see a doctor and continue their treatment if they wish to do so. So it's kind of a holistic approach to trying to make sure that a person's recovery starts in their prison and then continues once they're out. That's part of what the state prison system has has taken on. So, you know, opioid crisis, obviously, a you know, huge national issue claiming the lives of tens of thousands of people every year. How many correctional facilities are offering medication treatment for opioid use disorder right now? There is not really a comprehensive list, let's say, that the federal government keeps. Some researchers estimate that about 12% of the jails and prisons in the country have some kind of treatment in their, in their system. So that's 12% of about 4,400 state prisons and local jails. That is not a lot. There are 2.3 million people in prisons at any time in the U.S. Mm. and an additional 8 to 10 million people circulating through jails. So it is really only a fraction of the incarcerated population that has any access to this. And at the same time, the incarcerated population in the United States is known to have about a 65% rate of substance use disorder problem. So what is available in the prisons prisons and jails across the country is not tackling the problem inside. And the Biden administration really sees getting these programs into jails and prisons as key to reducing the crisis of overdose deaths that are happening in the country. So they have made this a real plank of their national drug strategy and something that they are putting kind of attention on and putting money towards. It is a problem that they want to fix. So why have these medications like buprenorphine and methadone largely been ignored in jails and prisons? I mean, first of all, they're controlled substances, so they're tightly regulated by the DEA. They have some requirements on how they need to be prescribed and how they need to be administered that isn't always easy for correctional facilities to do, Mm. particularly correctional facilities that are like small and don't have a large security staff and don't have a large budget for doctors. Or let's say they don't have local opioid treatment providers that they can bring into the prisons to help run these programs, which is a arrangement that a lot of facilities make. Another problem is kind of more fundamental, right? You know, some of these drugs have been smuggled into jails and prisons for years, you know? So it has been the job of the security staff at these places to clamp down on the drug supply of things like Suboxone. And now they're being told, actually, this is not only allowed, this is something that is going to be part of our institution and we're going to ask you to be a part of it too by helping supervise this. So there's a big effort to kind of educate people in jails and prisons across the country that these are drugs that save people's lives that are actually going to improve the environment in the facility that you are working in by reducing illegal drug smuggling, by reducing 
the number of like violent conflicts between staff and prisoners and also, you know, between residents who are living there themselves and that it is overall going to be like a beneficial to the environment of the correctional facility. So that's kind of the process of education that's happening right now. So I know the Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, you know, has some new guidance that you first reported in Politico. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, they've put out this really interesting document that offers for the first time kind of like a roadmap for jails and prisons to use to to say, okay, we have set up this treatment program. Is it working? Because there has been such a patchwork system um, where, you know, jails and prisons have like tried to set up different kinds of treatment programs across the country in different ways. This is an effort to create a standardization for these treatment programs. And the hope by, you know, ONDCP is that by offering these metrics that jails and prisons can use to say, okay, this is how many people are on the program. This is how many people have chosen to take the medication in our facility. This is what happens to them once they leave our facility. Is it working? Are we saving lives? The hope is that more jails and prisons will feel more comfortable trying to bring these programs into their facilities. You know, it's really an effort to expand access to these programs across the country. So I know that the Biden administration has really been focused on health equity and bolstering that. You know, how could this help address racial disparities? And are there any other sort of big picture impacts that the administration is hoping to make here? I think that it definitely would because there's such a disproportionate overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous individuals in the criminal justice system in the U.S. It will, by definition, you know, have an impact on increasing the access to treatment that those folks may not otherwise be getting, especially when you look at rates of overdose deaths in the country really rising in the Black community and in the different Indigenous communities and Native American and Alaska Native communities, you know, I mean, this is just another tool that can expand treatment options to those groups. That is actually something that's explicitly mentioned in Biden's uh, drug control, national drug control policy that he released last year, that this is a way to help tackle that problem. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for letting me come on and talk about this. I appreciate it. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra Abdullah and Annie Reese are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Ben Leonard. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. <laughs>